The Lord then appeared as Kapila incarnation, being the son of the Prajapati Brahman Karadama and his wife Devahuti, along with nine other women, sisters. He spoke to his mother about self-realization, by which in that very lifetime she became fully cleansed of the mud of the material modes and thereby achieved liberation, the path of Kapila. purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. You read half the purport yesterday? When the Lord descends personally or by His personal plenary expansions, such as incarnations, such incarnations are called Angsha, Kala, Guna, Yuga, and Manvantara incarnations. And when the Lord's associates descend by the order of the Lord, such incarnations are called Shaktyavesh incarnations. But in all cases, all the incarnations are supported by the invulnerable statements of the authorized scriptures and not by any imagination of some self-interested propagandist. Such incarnations of the Lord in either of the above categories always declare the Supreme Personality of Godhead <clears throat> to be the ultimate truth. The impersonal conception of the Supreme Truth is just a process of negation of the form of the Lord from the mundane conception of the Supreme Truth. The living entities, by their very constitution, are spiritually as good as the Lord, and the only difference between them is that the Lord is always supreme and pure, without contamination by the modes of material nature, whereas the living entities are apt to be contaminated by associate with the association with the material modes of goodness, passion, and ignorance. This contamination by the material modes <coughs> can be washed off completely by knowledge, renunciation, and devotional service. Devotional service to the Lord is the ultimate issue. And therefore, those who are directly engaged in the devotional service of the Lord not only acquire the necessary knowledge in spiritual science, but also attain detachment from material connection and are thus promoted to the kingdom of God by complete liberation, as stated in the Bhagavad Gita. Mamcha yogya bijharina bhakti yogena sevate sagunan samatityaitan brahma bhuyaya kalpate 
Even in the non-liberated stage, a living entity can be directly engaged in the transcendental loving service of the personality of Godhead, Lord Krishna, or his plenary expansions like Rama and Narasimha. Thus, with the proportionate improvement of such transcendental devotional service, the devotees make definite progress toward Brahmagatim or Atmagatim and ultimately attain Kapilasya Gatim or the abode of the Lord without difficulty. The antiseptic potency of devotional service to the Lord is so great that it can neutralize the material infection even in the present life of a devotee. A devotee does not need to wait for his next birth for complete liberation. <coughs> Kapila incarnation being the son of the Prajapati Brahman Karadama and his wife Devahuti, along with nine other women, sisters, he spoke to his mother about self-realization by which in that very lifetime she became fully cleansed of the mud of the material modes and thereby achieved liberation, the path of Kapila. Today we are very honored by our special guest, Sri Brahma Tirta Prabhu, and he has given me an order to speak something from Srimad Bhagavatam. So with that order, which is non-different than his lotus feet upon my head, I will try to speak for a few minutes, and then we will request Sri Brahma Tirta Prabhu to speak whatever he would like to speak to enlighten our hearts, perhaps about his remembrances of his divine grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. In this chapter, Lord Brahma is describing to Sri Narada Muni the scheduled incarnations that appear within the universal creation. Here he is explaining the wonderful descent of the Supreme Lord who appeared as Kapila Dev. <clears throat> in Srimad Bhagavatam, it is described in great length how the Lord appeared in this incarnation which especially revealed the supreme opulence of knowledge of the Absolute Truth. Aishwaryasya samagrasya viryasya yashashashriya jnana vairagya yoshtaiva sanam bhaga itingana Harasaramuni has explained what is Bhagwan. Bhagwan, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, is he who possesses all opulences in full, all strength, all knowledge, all wealth, all fame, all beauty, and all renunciation. The living entity, or the Jivatma, can possess a 
infinitesimal, minute portion of these, ops, of these opulences. Because we are part and parcel of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, in our pure state, in minute, minute proportion, we possess these opulences. But in this material world, because we have forgotten our connection to Krishna, we are covered by the modes of material nature, and we are incriminated in the laws of karma, and therefore we have to revolve or transmigrate again and again and again through the 8,400,000 species of life. And because our original consciousness is covered, these opulences are also obscure. But through manipulation of material energy, somehow some of these opulences can manifest through people. But they are temporary and they are limited. We may have some wealth, and wealth is attraction, and whoever sees our wealth will be attracted. Of course, in the material world, Attraction is not like spiritual attraction. The attraction we feel toward God or toward his devotees in a pure state of consciousness induces love. But in the material sense, attraction generally induces envy and greed and lust. When you are attracted to someone of the opposite sex, Love does not come about, karma, lust comes about. That attraction degrades us. When we are attracted to someone's wealth, we become envious. We want that wealth, we become greedy. Some pleasure may be there, perhaps, but it is all tinged. So these are material opulences which are perverted reflections of the real opulences of the soul. But the perfection of life is to understand the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is Krishna, who is all attractive, because no one else possesses all the six opulences eternally to the ultimate fullest degree. In fact, Krishna explains in Bhagavad Gita that all the opulences and wonderful things within this creation is just a tiny spark of his supreme splendor. So if we think that anything is attractive in this world, we should understand who is the reservoir of all attraction, Krishna, the source of everything, the cause of all causes. And therefore the perfection of life is to learn how to become detached from anything that takes our mind away from the all-attractive Krishna. And in Krishna is the reservoir of all incarnations, as Brahma Samhita explains. Ramadi Murati Shukala Yamanatishtam. And all other incarnations that come, who are expansions or expansions of the expansions of the Supreme Lord Govinda, they manifest particular opulences of the Supreme. Just as Lord Narasimhadev, he revealed the supreme opulence of strength. 
Nara Narayan Rishis, they <clears throat> reveal the supreme opulence of renunciation. Lord Vamanadev, the supreme opulence of beauty. Ritu Maharaj revealed the supreme opulence of wealth. He owned the universe. And Kapila Dev was that incarnation that revealed the supreme opulence of knowledge. People are attracted to knowledge. Sri Brahma Tirta Prabhu is very much involved in academic preaching. In fact, one of the things he's doing, a landmark in the history of our movement, when Srila Prabhupada was present with us, I believe he once gave a lecture at the Graduate Theological Union? Berkeley, yeah, he did. In Berkeley. He gave a lecture in 1968. And he heard about this particular college which taught theology up to the degree of master's degrees and PhDs. PhDs. So Srila Prabhupada said, we should have a department for Vaishnava studies in this university. Srila Prabhupada did not speak, think small. At that time in 1968, there were hardly a few devotees anywhere. And <laughs> And there was only about two or three books. Prabhupada said we should have a department, PhD level. And now by the great efforts of Brahmatirta Prabhu, as well as his divine grace, Srila Hridayananda Goswami Maharaj, it appears that very soon there will be a department of Vaishnava studies in the graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. It is a very great, inconceivable, extraordinary service that is being performed. Because people are attracted to knowledge. If you have these little letters after your name, you become very attractive. B.A. or B.S. or M.A or Ph.D. I remember one time at New Vrindavan, one devotee came who was actually working on his Ph.D. Sadaputa. He was working on his Ph.D. This was in the early 70s. And he came to New Vrindavan, and New Vrindavan was a farming community. Basically, was taking care of cows and the deities and growing food like that. So, this person came and he was ready to do any service, very humble brahmachari, but he still, he wanted to spend time studying and practicing for his PhD. So, he was given a certain instrument. It's two pieces of wood with sharp metal at the end. And what you do is you push it in the ground as hard as you can and you take your feet and jump on it until somehow it goes into the ground. Then you squeeze it and then it takes out a big lump of dirt and then you throw the dirt aside. Yeah. And then you take a piece of wood and you put it in the hole 
and in this way you make fences to keep the cows from going away. And that instrument is called a post hole digger. So he said, you want to get PhD? Here is your PhD. <laughs> post hole digger. Anyways, he made post holes. He also painted the temple. Then he went to college to get his PhD. <laughs> but why? Because these letters indicate high knowledge. And knowledge is an opulence. It attracts people. Certain people in society, they consider if you are well-educated, then you have authority. We will hear from you. But Krishna, what is the degree of his knowledge? Krishna explains in Gita, Vedaham samatitani varatamanani chajana bhavashani chabutani mamtu vedanakashtuna He knows everything, past, present and future. He knows every living being. But him no one can know in full. So the expansion of Krishna came as Kapila Dev to reveal the opulence of knowledge. And how he appeared is a wonderful story. The great king of all humanity's name was Swayambhuva Manu. And he had a beautiful, beautiful daughter of the name Devahuti. In those days, women were kept so pure and chaste that even the sun would have to make efforts to see them or to speak of the eyes of anyone else besides immediate family members. And she was so beautiful that once she was playing on the ball in the roof of her palace and one of the demigods happened to see her on his airplane and he fell off the plane. So you can imagine what is the quality of her beauty. In fact, you should not imagine what is the quality of her beauty. <laughs> but you should, you should meditate on the beauty of the source of her beauty, Radha Gopinath. <laughs> so she was of marriageable age, and Swayambhuva Manu was always performing devotional service and he pleased the Supreme Lord, Sri Krishna, Narayan, who told Swayambhuva Manu, along with Lord Brahma, that she should marry a great devotee named Karadama. Meanwhile, Karadama Muni, he was a tapasi. He was doing tremendous austerities in devotion to God. Because this is in a previous age where bhakti was performed by performing great, great tapasya for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, he was living in a forest and he performed such austerities for the pleasure of Vishnu that seeing them, Vishnu began to cry tears. And those tears filled up a lake which is called Bindusrovar, a very sacred place. And Vishnu appeared before him and told him that I want you to marry the daughter of Swayambhuva Manu. He had no material desires. 
but he was willing to accept whatever service the Lord wanted. Some people may think, how is marriage devotional service? Kardama Muni was fit to be a better brahmachari than anyone in this age of Kali Yuga. It is not that he was agitated and was looking for a wife. He was very, very totally self-controlled, pure devotee of the Lord. He was Paramahams. But the Lord wanted him to perform the service of accepting the Grihastha Ashram, which shows how sacred the Grihastha Ashram is if it is performed in devotional service. So Kardama Muni immediately agreed. And then... Another very extraordinary incident. Swayambhuvamanu was a multi, multi, multi billionaire. More than the Tatas or the Birlas or any of these little tiny billionaires. He actually was the king of the earth. Describes what his palace was like. Such a palace cannot exist in the age of Kali. The jewels, there were thousands of millions of jewels on the walls and in the ceiling and on the floor, and they were so precious that there was no need for electricity. The jewels lit up the whole place. And when he would go to sleep at night, there would be hundreds of wonderful, beautiful Gandharva-like singers singing the glories of Krishna. And he would sleep dreaming of Krishna. And they would wake him up singing the glories of Krishna and he would wake up thinking of Krishna. He was always thinking of Krishna. He's one of the Mahajans. And how he wanted to protect his daughter. Now these days when people want to get their matter, daughters married, the first thing they start thinking about here in India. In America, parents don't get their daughters married. They just say, go out into the jungle and hunt for your own. <laughs> That's the American system. Something like that. Crude words, but I think it's quite accurate. <laughs> huh? The, hunt, the hunters and the hunted. <clears throat> everyone is both. In the West, everyone is hunting and everyone is hunted. Very frustrating system. But in India, there's still some culture, but the culture has been perverted. Now when you start looking for a husband for your daughter, you start thinking, are they of my caste? First thing. They must be of my caste. Because after all, I was born in this body, and this body is sacred, and it must be, because if they're not of my caste, my relatives will criticize me. And that's worse than death. So that's the first thing. Caste. The next thing is how much money is he making? How many rupees per month does he earn? And what kind of house does he live in? What comforts will my daughter have? How many nice shampoos will be in her hairs? <laughs> and how many saris will be on her body? And how much ghee will she drink in her food? These are the considerations. Something like that. Am I speaking correctly? <laughs> and whether the person's a devotee or not, that's all right. If he has all these things and he's a devotee, then we don't mind. 
But if he has all these things and he's not a devotee, we don't mind. But these are the most important considerations. Educational qualifications, degrees, wealth, particular type of birth. Now, Swayambhuvamanu is Mahajan. And according to the Shastra, Mahajano Yenagata Sapanta. Everyone should follow in the footsteps of Mahajans, whether you are a sannyasi or a brahmachari or a grihasta or a vanaprastha. That is the path, the only path to truth. So Swayambhuvamanu, he was fabulously wealthy. He was Chatriya. And Kardama Muni, he didn't go to college, no degrees, didn't have a job. <laughs> as far as we know from our research of the scriptures, he never worked a day in his life, <laughs> as far as money-making work. And he was living in the jungle and sleeping under trees in the forest, performing tapasya, and he had long matted hairs, beard. What could he supply to her? He could supply to her bhakti. He could protect her in Krishna consciousness. Swayambhuvamanu could have married his daughter to any of the demigods, to any of the kings, to any of the princes, to any of the Krorpatis of the time. Everyone wanted Devahuti. No woman has such popularity today. The distinction, the beauty, everything about her, everyone wanted. Kardama Muni didn't even want. He just wanted to please the Lord. But Swayambhuvamanu chose Kardama Muni to give his wife, his daughter, because he understood he is a pure devotee. If I marry her to Kardama Muni, she will go back to Godhead. She will be protected in her devotion to the Lord. And it, besides that, it was the will of the Lord. So there was a wedding ceremony and then Devahuti went out to live in the jungles. And Kardama Muni, he was just sitting in samadhi all the time. Sometimes wives, many times as sannyasis we get complaints. Why my husband is doing so much service, he doesn't pay enough attention to me. This has been going on for a long time. <laughs> Some of you ladies, sometimes you think like this. Why? He's doing so much service. He doesn't pay enough attention to me and everything else around me. Anyways, Kardama Muni, for months, for years at a time, he would just be sitting in samadhi without coming out. And she would just wait. And as a chaste wife, she would not eat until after he ate. And he wouldn't eat. But she wouldn't eat. And he wouldn't bathe until after he bathed. And he was in samadhi. He forgot that there's a world around him. So he didn't bathe for so many days, weeks, months at a time. And she would just always be preparing everything nicely for him in the jungles. And she accepted whatever house he had. He slept in the ground. She slept in the ground. So after some years, her hair was matted, 
Her body was emaciated and thin. All of her beauty just disappeared. Her, 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 her complexion became, her beautiful golden complexion, blackish from all soil and dirt and bruises. And one day, Kardamamuni came out of Samadhi. And he saw his wife like this. She never complained. She never said, why don't you get a job? I'm going to leave you. I'm going back to my father's house. She never said like this. She just very humbly served her husband with great adoration and love because she knew that he was worshipping the Supreme Personality of Godhead. But Kardama Muni, in his heart, he could understand that she was not very happy because as a woman, her nature was she wanted to have a child. That is a woman's nature. And to have a child in Krishna's service is the perfection of that nature. So Kardama Muni decided to give her a child. But how to give her a child? Because in order to have children, there has to be some sort of inspiration, you may say. And they were both ascetics living in the jungle. It was too much in the mode of goodness. Some passion has to be there. You can use that passion in Krishna's service, then it becomes, it becomes bhakti. Krishna says, I am that sex that is for according to religious principles. So what Kardama Muni did is, it's a long story, but he, he created a beautiful lake. And he told Devahuti to go in the lake after he chanted many nice mantras. And she went in the lake to take her bath. And there were beautiful celestial damsels under the water. And they cleaned her body and combed her hair and gave her some nectar. And her body came out as beautiful as it was before she performed her tapasya. Just the elegant reservoir of, of beauty in this world, full of health. But then they, he was thinking the jungle is not a suitable place. So by his mystic power, he chanted mantras, and from his mind he created a mansion, magnificent mansion, <coughs> more beautiful than Indra, the king of heaven's abode. And this mansion, not only was it elegant, with all, it was made out of coral and rubies and diamonds and gold and silver and marble, onyx, all these precious, there was no cement, <coughs> nothing like that, or wood, or steel. Inside and out, it was all just precious, precious materials. And there were lakes, and auspicious full-grown trees, and swans, and peacocks singing, and, and cuckoo birds and all kinds of beautiful sounds and fragrances of flowers, lotus flowers, and all auspicious flowers were growing, jasmine. It was a paradise, truly a paradise. 
And not only that, but it flew. The whole complex was an airplane. And by mystic, by Kardamamuri's mystic power, it can go from one planet to another. Now this is power. These days we're very proud of our 747 jumbo jets. Very low grade of technology in <laughs> comparison. Nobody likes Everyone's sitting there, when will it land? Because it's so frustrating. You go into the plane. You first you have to buckle seatbelt because you may fly and crash your skull. Then they tell you about if this plane crashes in the ocean, there is a flotation seat, a little this big, that you're supposed to hold on to and it's going to save you in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> All the sharks are coming and you're like, oh. I'm safe, I have my flotation cushion. And then there is, right in front of you, there's a little bag. Because when the turbulence goes, and you get nauseous, it's a nice little bag with, with plastic lining that you can vomit into. And it has a special sealing cover so that you don't, other people don't have to smell your vomit, providing you aim it properly in the bag. <laughs> And usually these days the planes, they take off light, they, they land late, sometimes they crash in midair here in Delhi with another plane, and there's all these air traffic controllers. Chris Baymiller, he was an air fetcher. He got fired by Ronald Reagan directly. It's a personal matter. <laughs> These air traffic controllers, they're the ones who are just looking in their little machines to make sure the planes don't um, crash. And, you know, after they get off work, they're taking drugs and they're drinking alcohol, and then they come to work the next day, and you're in the air thinking, oh, I am safe. The imperfect senses. And every now and then, because they're not getting enough money, they go on strike, and then no airplanes can fly. Anyways, these are the airplanes today, and they're just bumping around, and you're just going, and you, you go to the bathroom, and it's this big. Very uncomfortable. And this they call technology, and it's making all these terrible sounds. And... You know, the most they can go to America, to London, and they have to stop, then they get, have to get gas, then they can go to Bombay, and then like that. Anyways, this is the best that human beings can come up with. But Kardama Muni, his, it was spacious. It can go between planets. Within a matter of days, it can go from one heavenly planet to another heavenly planet. And there's no seat belts. And there's no air traffic controllers or pilots. It was just going on its own. Kardamamuni would just chant a mantra which planet it would go. 
And as it was sailing, they weren't under seat belts, making sure their vomit bag was in front of them. They were just running through the groves and sailing on boats and the ships and having wonderful prasad, so many cooks. It was, this is real technology. This is opulence. So Kardama Muni created this type of arra arrangement for Devahuti. And then they went to have children. And the first thing Kardama Muni did is he expanded himself into nine forms and gave birth to nine daughters to Devahuti. And he really wanted to satisfy her. But she didn't have a son, and she wanted a son. So Kardama Muni fulfilled her desire. And according to the consciousness of a man and a woman, when they come together in the act of having children, that determines what type of child will come to take shelter within the man's body and then transferred to the woman's. In the Vedic system there is Garbhadan Samskara. Garbhadan Samskara is that ceremony by which the man and the woman both completely fix their consciousness on Krishna in a mood of service and devotion. And when you have a child in that spirit, a very special devotee of the Lord will come and take shelter of the womb. So because Kardama Muni and Devahuti were of such an exalted status of devotion, because neither of them wanted to have children simply for their own sense gratification, they wanted to do it as a service to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. And the result was the Supreme Personality of Godhead personally appeared as Kapila Dev. And after he was born, this beautiful child, Kardama Muni was thinking, now my job is done. The child grew up a little. Kardama Muni said to Devahuti, Hare Krishna. Now your life is perfect. I will go perform my tapasya. And he left. And Devahuti was under the care and the protection of Lord Kapiladev. And in third canto of Srimad Bhagavatam, there's beautiful narration. Devahuti approaches her own son, knowing him to be exalted in the fields of transcendental knowledge, and began to inquire from him, Why am I suffering? Who am I? What is the goal of life? Who is God? Please tell me these things. And in response to her questions, Lord Kapiladev spoke Sankhya philosophy. Within this Sankhya system of philosophy, he scrutinizingly analyzed from the authority of the Creator God Himself how this material existence was created and how it is working. He described scientifically the composition of the material elements and how they are interacting and why. 
He describes time from the point of view of atomic particles. He describes the five, the eight material elements, the 26 material elements in great depth. The greatest, most modern scientists of the day have not even touched the information that Lord Kapiladev has revealed, nor will they ever, because it is beyond the empiric capacity of our intelligence. He explained the consciousness of a baby child within the womb of its mother from the, from the time of conception to the time of birth and all the transformations that take place. He explained the various planetary systems, astrology, astronomy, from the point of view of God. But it all culminates in his revelation that he shared with Devahuti, that all of this is realized only through the process of pleasing the Supreme Lord. And there is only one way to please the Lord, to become attached to a sadhu and to surrender to his instructions, to be the servant of the servant of the Lord. Through that process, the Lord will bestow bhakti upon us, devotion, and that is the crest jewel of all knowledge and all realizations by which the Lord reveals himself to us. The wonderful series of questions between Devahuti and Lord Kapiladev have been read and worshipped for millenniums in the same way that the questions and answers between Sri Brahma Tirta Prabhu and Srila Prabhupada will be read and worshipped for ages to come. <coughs> so at this time I would like to request Sri Brahma Tirta Prabhu to kindly speak something about his wonderful loving relationship as the intimate servant of Srila Prabhupada. Well, not so intimate, not so much of a servant, but I'll speak a few words by your mercy, Maharaj. Um, Krishna, uh, Krishna says, Bhakti Mamma Bhajanate. Now he says, only by devotional service can I be known. So the issue may come, why are we, uh, why would someone be pursuing academics, PhD, MS, why are we doing things like that? In uh, my recorded part of the conversation with Prabhupada, I had uh, told Prabhupada I was teaching science and chemistry and that there's some knowledge to be gained there. And Ian Prabhupada said to me, not very useful knowledge. You can combine hydrogen and oxygen and get water. But if you don't know where hydrogen and where oxygen comes from, who makes them, that knowledge isn't very useful. <clears throat> so it may seem what use is uh, PhD, MS. You can just get a very long business card. In India, I saw one business card. It was very funny. One man gave me his card. It showed MA, Oxford. Ph.D. B.F. Does anybody know what a Ph.D. B.F. is? Okay. 
This is true story. PhD BF is, uh, I said, what's a PhD BF? He goes, but failed. <laughs> he failed the final exam, but it's better than an MA. <laughs> Somebody in Delhi gave me that card once because they like so many initials after their name. I, <laughs> I wish I had saved that card because no one will believe this. <laughs> so, uh, yet Prabhupada wanted us to pursue these academic pursuits because there's also devotional service there. When in 1977 we had the first conference. Now the science conference is next week in Calcutta. I'll be going there. But our first conference was in 1977. Were you there, Maharaj? 1977, just two, two to three, three weeks before Prabhupada left us. And Prabhupada was very ill then. But uh, I came there and uh, Sadab Putaji and uh, other devotees and we were giving uh, various papers. Uh, and then some scientists from universities, not Nobel laureates who come to our conference now, but various scientists came and well-known scientists gave papers. And uh, uh, one, time, one time after the conference, Prabhupada, called us every day, in fact. He'd call us in his room to get a report. He was very ill and couldn't see very well at all then. His room was a little darkened. So we came into his room and his secretary, Tamal Krishna Goswami, then said, Prabhupada, your scientists are here. But because Prabhupada couldn't see, he described it. He said, and they're wearing suits and ties. Because in order just sometimes to go on Sankirtan, we may wear various outfits, especially in America, other than the dhoti, because we may not be accepted in a place with the dhoti. Uh, so similarly, in order to relate with the scientists, we were wearing the appropriate garments, which was a suit and tie. And then Prabhupada said, so, get them chairs. So, Srubdhamadhar Maharaj, who was our leader, he said, oh, Prabhupada, we are your disciples, we sit right here on the floor. And Prabhupada said, no, get them chairs. Of course, there weren't any chairs then or just one or two. We didn't have so many chairs around. We generally sat on the floor. So somebody found a chair, and I think three of us sat in one chair. <laughs> and then somebody found another chair, and then some of us had to sit halfway down as if we were in a chair, but not in a chair, because we couldn't sit on the floor, and Prabhupada said sit, and his order is everything. So we sort of sat in a pretend chair, which is an interesting way to sit. <laughs> but... Um, the point is that Prabhupada had a lot of respect for us pursuing this degree. Uh, and why? Well, he didn't want us to have MA, PhD. Somebody wants to know what's wrong with society. They always ask one of these people. They, they, have, they, they have a saying in America that those who can do and those who can't teach. So those who can do and those who can't teach. Of course, obviously, that's not the Vedic system at all. The Vedic system is, I, I was just this morning speaking with Krishna Chandra's father. And the first, when he heard about the college, the first thing he said was, he said, 
Yes, and your students must practice as Vaishnavs. He said they must practice as Vaishnavs. And um, that was the exact instruction that Srila Prabhupada gave us. We have a college. Our students must have sadhana. So, uh, so those who teach can is the Vedic system. But in America, they say those who can do, those who can't, they teach. You've heard that uh, saying? <laughs> uh, so Prabhupada very much... Uh, I am trying to teach. What's that? <laughs> yeah. And those who can teach, they consult. And those who can consult... They work for the government. That's the saying they have. <laughs> That's the rest of the saying. I probably just insulted everyone in the room, but so, so we go on. <laughs> uh, and uh, of course, that's a government without kshatriyas and teachers without brahmins and etc. As you understand. Uh, anyway, uh, Prabhupada uh, gave. Uh, an emphasis that these people are really not authorities. When Prabhupada went to MIT, you probably all know this story, he said, he gave a talk and he said, where is your department that distinguishes between the dead body and the alive body? Where is such a department? And when he gave us the instructions for this graduate theological union, and all this is in the conversation book, you can see June 22nd, 1975, if someone's curious. Um, when he gave this instruction, he said we should have departmental knowledge. Oh, is there so many things we need to know? Somebody who have to know auto mechanics and physics and, you know, different technical matters. But the main thing was, what's the difference between body and soul? So Prabhupada wanted his disciples to become the authority on this matter. And we will not be the recognized authority unless we have, after our name, certain initials. And so, just like Lord Chaitanya, he took... Sanyas, he, what did he need sanyas for? So, some, so we're pursuing the project directly on Prabhupada's orders. And when Prabhupada gave the order uh, many years ago, late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, um, we couldn't follow it then. And I see why, because it takes a certain maturity, because we, we, sometimes you put enough initials after your name, you start believing it that there's something to this. And I've seen in the early days of the movement, Prabhupada sent many devotees, you study, you try this Sanskrit, and then immediately uh, they would know more than their guru. You study, study Sanskrit for two weeks, you know more than your guru. <laughs> you know, you've seen these things happen. So, um, it, it, but Prabhupada wanted the authority because the authorities that exist now in the academic world are unfortunately not Vaishnav, and in fact, often uh, uh, with scorn. Uh, the, uh, if you practice something, you cannot know it. But our epistemology is, you can only know it, you can only know it by practicing. You can only know it that way, because it's a higher kind of knowledge. It's just like if you want to know knowledge of those things that are less than you, those things that are less than you, you can study analyze, put under microscope, telescopes, capture the various elements and analyze it at the uh, gross level, at the subtle levels with psychology, 
But if you want to know something greater than you, the process of knowing is a different process, and that process is devotional service. Just like if I, I, let's say, I have the keys to the car, and somebody says, okay, where are the keys? I won't tell you. I don't want to tell you. You, have, you try to please me. Oh, please me, and then maybe I'll tell you. <laughs> like that. Prabhupada told me, he said, you want to approach Mr. Birla. He's too rich, you can't approach him. But you give his son a two-cent candy, then Mr. Birla will <laughs> become pleased with you. The idea of some service. So, um, um, in that mood of devotional service, we're very humbly <laughs> trying to um, uh, set up an academic institution such that we become the recognized authority on Vaishnavism for now. In like a needle, out like a plow. <laughs> so ultimately, Vaishnavism is not a religion. It's not a sect. It is, as we all know, Sanatana Dharma. But that concept of Sanatana Dharma take them a while to understand. So we're working our way there. So uh, these are the comments. I tell one little story add with Prabhupada. Because I was uh, seeing Bombay, kind of miserable city with some pretty parks here and there. And one time I was walking in uh, Denver. You were with me, Bhakti. Then Denver... We're walking in this beautiful, beautiful park in Denver where Prabhupada walked. Did you ever go there, Maharaj? Beautiful park. It's really nice. We were there at six in the morning. And then behind us is this whole city. And when you look at the city, you just see Raja Guna. So Prabhupada's walking. And he says, yes, this is lazy intelligence. He said, they worked so hard. Because you look at the city, you see such hard work. And build this park. And what's the best time of day to be in a park? Brahma Mahorta time. Nice walk, early morning, peaceful. No one's there. They work so hard. And we get this whole beautiful park to ourselves. And we don't have to do anything. <laughs> they work hard and we enjoy the park. The Prabhupada always had that very practical intelligence. Okay. So I uh, thank you very much. I've said much too much already. No, no, say more. Say more? Let me see. Oh, really? I, I can tell one more Prabhupada story. I'll tell you a story of... Uh, uh, well, This is an intimate Prabhupada story, but I actually feel, by the mercy of Radhanath Swami, that, every, that I'm with a home of old friends who I've known for 50 years, and I'm not even 50 years old. <laughs> so we'll tell an intimate Prabhupada story here. So, so Prabhupada gave me a little uh, attention to Mayapur because I had maybe some ego, and if I didn't get a little attention, I didn't have the brain to understand philosophically. That's actually the truth. So Prabhupada can make us into puppets. He really can. And uh, this is the ability of the guru, the sadhu, to make us into puppets. So uh, one time, 
I was uh, thinking, it took me, I didn't get initiated for four years after I met Prabhupada. Because I wanted to study the whole philosophy from different points of view is my external reason. The internal reason is sense gratification. <laughs> but um, um, anyway, but we have our external reasons. So uh, <clears throat> I, um, um, I was in New York Temple, old Henry Street Temple. You were there. So Henry Street, very narrow hallway. And Prabhupada would walk from one room to another room. And he was walking down the hall. And then um, I was thinking, oh, and when he would walk, as soon as he would get closer, devotees would offer obeisances. So what I did is I said, I didn't even want Prabhupada to see me. Why should he see me? This will ruin his day. Here it is. He gave me all this mercy. Two years later, I'm still not even taking first diksha. So why should he even see me? So immediately I offered obeisances as soon as he, his foot rounded the corner. And then I said the prayer so slowly, maybe ten minutes or something it, it seemed, so that Prabhupada would be past me and then I would stand up. Because the devotees would offer the prayers quickly and then stand up to get another look of Prabhupada. So then Prabhupada stopped right where I was and waited. I didn't know he was there. <laughs> I had no idea. So I'm slowly saying the prayer and I said, Shh, got away with this one, stood up, and there's Prabhupada about this far from me, about this far. And he said, nice to see you, and puts his arm like this. Just what I didn't want, but what Krishna, or what I needed. So then, then I, I saw Prabhupada again, and something like that happened. Then I saw Prabhupada another time, and I was thinking, oh, Prabhupada's going to be glad to see me, isn't he? Wouldn't that be nice? And not only will he be glad to see me, the other devotees will see he's glad to see me. Won't that be nice? <laughs> I was thinking like this. So then I walked up to Prabhupada to give him a cookie. This is in the new, we had a new building in New York in Manhattan. What's that? Cook, uh, flowers. I mean, to give Prabhupada flowers and he gives you the cookie. To pra give Prabhupada flowers and he would give the cookie. So I walked up, you know, nose high in the air. Here, here is the flowers. I got the cookie and Prabhupada looked at me as if I was a sheet of glass. In other words, I wasn't there. He saw everyone else in the room but didn't see me. He handed me the cookie. It was, and he didn't see me. And, that's, and I've never had a more humbling experience. So he did like that. But Prabhupada, I'll tell you one little quick story. And one time in New York, Prabhupada, my uncle had a nice car then. It was a Lincoln. And I used to borrow it. Because in the New York temple, the only cars we have may, make your taxis look luxurious. The little Fiat taxi, the cars we had in New York then. When the police department would use a car and it was no good for anything anymore, then we would buy it and use it take off the police markings and use it. Or an old taxi cab that no one would dare drive. That became the temple car. So, and we had very little money. So my uncle had a Lincoln. So I borrowed it and I would drive Prabhupada back and forth in the airport. So one time Prabhupada's about to get in the car. And I'm thinking, well, I should offer obeisances. But I couldn't open the door of the car because it's surrounded by devotees. 
So I try opening it to get out Norfolk Basin. He sees he's coming. I can't. Oh, there's too many devotees. There's nothing to do. Then he's coming. What do I do? Well, Norfolk Basin is, and he's about to get in the car. So now I said, there won't be room. My head will be on his seat. He'll sit on my head. That would be uncomfortable. <laughs> so then I said, I know what I'll do. Yeah, you just don't think clearly. I'll offer obeisance underneath the steering wheel. So I'm crawling under the steering wheel <laughs> to try to offer obeisance to Prabhupada. Just crazy. Just crawling under the steering wheel. I'm sitting in the driver's seat. The car is ready to go. The engine's running. Prabhupada's about to... He gets in the car, pats me on the head and goes, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So. <laughs> then, then I give one warning. One warning. So another little previously, I was going to offer obeisances to Prabhupada. And I was in New York City. There's a lot of dogs, you know. And the dogs are all owned by people. But dogs do not have good toilet habits. So one time... Prabhupada was walking down the steps. I was just a bhakta. I said, I'm going to offer obeisances to Prabhupada. No, not on this dirty New York street. Yes, I will. No, I won't. Yes, I will. No, I won't. And then Prabhupada just stepped down the steps. I said, finally, no, I won't. And at that moment, my foot stepped you know where. <laughs> so then I was always very strict to offer obeisances any place. <laughs> yeah, that's enough. Well, the, the background of perfect questions was um, I had joined the Peace Corps to um, Peace Corps was a uh, who here has heard of the Peace Corps okay you know about that Peace Corps was a program America had it was cancelled after the India-Pakistan war of 1971 I was here then. Uh, but it was a program where American volunteers, it still exists all over the world, but not India, in Nepal it exists, where American volunteers, because you're American, that means you know everything about everything. We would go to a foreign country, <clears throat> fresh out of, out of uh, college, finishing our bachelor BS degree, BA degree, and we would go and uh, show all these backward people how to survive at 21 years old. But silly concept that way, but nice concept in cultural exchange. So I was assigned to work in Bihar as a science teacher. Now on my application to the Peace Corps, they give you three choices of countries. Very hard to get in, but if you get in, you get three choices. So they gave me three choices, and I choose. My first choice, of course, was India. And my second choice was, of course, India. And you can guess what my third choice was. <laughs> Because I had heard the devotees chanting one time, and I could never, never get it out of my mind. It just, it stuck. So I wanted to know if this chanting was some bogus thing or something real. Because in America, at that time, in the 60s, every week in New York, there was a centerfold of this newspaper, Daily News. There was a guru coming from India. This Maharajji, that Nishji, and this one, and that one. Every week there was somebody coming, and he was proclaiming, I am God. It was like a joke in the New York newspaper. Who's God this week? And another one would come. <laughs> You're laughing, but in India you have every day. 
You don't have to have every week. You, we were fortunate. We only had once a week. Here you, you're blessed every day you have. Every day, every corner. <laughs> every street corner. So I wanted to go to... <laughs> I, wa I was curious about this. And then when I went to India, I went to the um, various temples. And I'd say, why are you praying? And they said, well, we're praying. Why? Money, dowry, rain. It was, it was like they were going to a merchandise shop and placing an order. They go to the temple, place the order, and then wait for the delivery date. <laughs> and they pay their fee, some flour, something. And I said, oh my gosh, I flew all the way around the world, got dysentery, came here just to find out the same, the same thing I left in America. So then one day I was in Calcutta, I'd taken the overnight train, I was in Bihar, I took the overnight train in order to buy a milkshake. It was a good milkshake. And I took it there and I saw Hare Krishna festival. So I said, boy, I've been chanting this mantra. So I went there and there was a devotee, Giri Rajswami was speaking. And he was saying to this audience in very fancy square in uh, Calcutta, and the audience was all Bengali gentlemen, high officials, all in suits and ties. And the, uh, it was winter time, it was cool, so they're all in their suits and ties. And there were the devotees all dressed in, as devotees. And he was saying, you've given up your culture of to go after the garbage that we've thrown away. Similar to the story of Sanatana Goswami and the touchstone. I said, finally, I've been in India six months. Somebody said something that made sense. Then I met Swami Prabhupada. Immediately I became vegetarian. Then I went to Calcutta for reasons I won't discuss in an association of Vaishnavs. But Peace Corps workers were not very strict in all their hippie vows. And uh, I, I went to Calcutta, but somehow I got diverted to Mayapur ran into a devotee. He said, Prabhupada's in Mayapur. I met Prabhupada and I was so impressed. So I said, okay, I'll go to Mayapur. There was nothing there. Who here has been to Mayapur? Who, who has been to Mayapur? Raise your hand. Who has not been to Mayapur? Okay. And who hasn't raised their hand and doesn't know what Mayapur is? <laughs> we got everyone covered. Okay. Don't want to miss anyone. Everyone should participate. So, uh, we uh, went to Mayapur. There was nothing there but the Bhajan Kutir of Prabhupada. You know that Bhajan Kutir? It's still there. The, the, the hut. Nothing there but tents. And the festival of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, that was Gorpanima, maybe a few thousand people came. Now I think to the island, maybe a million, who knows? You know, unlimited people. The Prabhupada arranged his mercy. But then there was a few thousand people came nearby to. Who was it? Yoga Pit to, to worship Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. It wasn't even a big festival. Even in Bengal, there was a minor, minor festival. Where some people came, old ladies, a few, a few Vaishnavas come. So, so I, I ended up there, and uh, uh, I, there's a formula in Gita: just render service to a spiritual master, inquire submissively. So I did that quite accidentally, hit the right formula, and then. Uh, Prabhupada uh, then reciprocated and, and, and uh, of course, uh, uh, spoke with me quite a bit. Uh, I was the only one on the whole island who wasn't 
either a native of the island or it wasn't a devotee. So at that time, the movement was quite large. It was hard to get personal attention of Prabhupada. There were also many senior devotees then who could preach but, and speak very nicely. But since I was the only one there, I got a little mercy. So I said to Prabhupada when I saw him again, you know, as you can tell, I have a lot of pride. So I said to Prabhupada, oh, since I saw you, I've become vegetarian. I thought he'd be happy I'm vegetarian. So his brother said, vegetarian? He said, the pigeons are vegetarian? He says, the monkeys are vegetarian? And they're rascals. <laughs> so at that point, <laughs> and then, and then, I'm running out of time, but I tell one uh, mystical story. Mystical story. Everyone likes something, a little miracle story. So I was in college before I went to India. And there's one verse, what is that? Api chet sudarachado. Uh, even if one commits the most abominable activities, if he's uh, a Vaishnava considered saintly as well, situated. Even if one commits the most abominable activities. So when I read the Gita, 19, I don't know, 69, 70 in college, and I came across that verse, I read in English. I never saw Sanskrit in my life. As you can tell, I still can't pronounce anything in Sanskrit. So I never saw Sanskrit, but I read that one verse. When I read the Gita, when I read that one verse, I said, this is strange. Are you a sinner or a saint? Which are you? It doesn't make, a difference. It doesn't make sense. Black and white doesn't make sense. So I asked my professor, my dear <coughs> Professor Ignorance, please, can you explain this to me? He couldn't explain anything. He said he had no idea. The only verse in Gita, so many more important verses, frankly, but that verse stuck in my mind. So I met Prabhupada, and he's talking to me a little, and the very first Sanskrit verse he quotes to me, I forgot the rest now, he quotes that whole verse. Anybody know that whole verse by memory? Thank you. Uh, so he quoted that verse. And then the very next thing he said to me was, so you know what that means? And I did. That was that one ver the only verse I knew in Gita, not in Sanskrit, in English, was the first one he quoted to me. And then he asked me, so you know what it means? And he already talked to me for a little bit, so it was obvious I didn't know any Sanskrit or any, anything. And he asked me, so you know what that verse means? He says, you know that verse, you, you tell me. And that was the one verse that was a mystery from two years ago in college to me. So I said, oh. I said, oh yeah. And uh, I roughly knew, and I, I told him. Then later on I realized, wow, how did the only verse he quoted to me that he asked me, do I know, he asked me what it means, as if he knew I knew what it meant. I thought, that is amazing. So, uh, at that point, um, uh, uh, I, I understood Prabhupada knew my mind better than I knew my mind. There was no point in being proud. I was vegetarian, so big deal. Big deal. Mon and so are monkeys. Uh, so at that point, I said, well, okay, my pride gone. It's time to just take instruction from Prabhupada. Just listen carefully. So I said, okay, I have met a saintly person. I may, uh, how can I judge who's saintly, who's not? 
But he's obviously saintly anyway. So I'm going to just take it. I'm just going to listen carefully. I just made up. I remember thinking to this day. I'm thinking in my mind. I'm just going to listen carefully. So he would kept calling. Come. He would call me. Come and ask questions. So the the, the servant would come get me. Get that Peace Corps guy. He can ask me more questions. So he kept calling me to his room various times. So, uh, so I would sit at his feet and ask questions. But in the first three minutes, he convinced me that I don't know too much. So that somehow I, he put me, it was, it, it's a very difficult job to do, but he gave me, he made me a little humble for a little bit. And I accidentally got the formula from Gita. Inquire submissively. And I wasn't lazy, so the, whatever the devotees asked, I did. So I did some service. So you render service. So, now I want to render some service to Radhanath Swami. First service I'll render is be quiet. <laughs> and, and then uh, and I ask if any service I can do while I'm here to this project, I'd be very happy. This is very, personally, very inspiring me, inspiring for me to be here, because I've always particularly enjoyed India and being in India. I feel very natural. But lately, India, every time I come, it seems to be going downhill more and more, and it gets a little hopeless. So to see the, the, this light, this spark here in India, so many in, in, in intelligent people, instead of like the moth flying into the fire, surrendering here, I can hardly describe to you the inspiration it is to me and uh, how inspired I am to serve you. Thank you very much.